Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Prometheus Podcast, where we discuss all things macro, markets, and investing. I'm your host, Ahan, and I'm the founder of Prometheus Research. This is the sixth episode in a series of many podcasts to come, where we bring you thoughtful, insightful, and actionable conversations. Today, we have on another fantastic guest for you, Eric Basmajian. Eric is the founder of EPB Macro, a macro research firm focused on economic cycle analysis. Eric has an excellent mechanistic understanding of the economy and applies a data-driven approach to forecasting the economic cycle. Anyone interested in macro forecasting will have something to learn from him. I sure do. So really looking forward to our conversation. Eric, it's such a pleasure to have you on. It's such a uh, pleasure to be on, especially where we are now with uh, a lot of turmoil and, uh, and split decisions among market participants on where we're going next. So it should be a good conversation. Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, it's a very exciting time to be in macro. So Eric, let's just dive right in. Why don't you start by briefly kind of outlining your approach and what you do at EPB? Okay, sure. So um, what I do is I focus on uh, trends in, in growth and inflation, ultimately, because in my view, trends in growth and inflation, or the combination of trend and nominal growth, uh, are, are the primary drivers of asset class performance. Um, I focus on two specific timeframes. Uh, the first thing I do whenever I approach the world or approach the analysis of an economy is I focus on what are called secular economic trends or some people call them structural economic trends or trend potential. All of these things are basically just trying to get at what are the long-term gravitational forces in the economy. And those are primarily driven by uh, labor force growth and productivity growth, but I simplify them to debt and demographics. So what's the growth rate of the population and then what's the age structure or age composition of the population? And then um, the country's debt levels. Generally speaking, higher levels of debt suppress economic uh, activity or suppress productivity. So whenever you see an economy, which is the general uh, setup for most developed markets with, with slowing or negative population growth, aging demographics, and increasing levels of debt, in my framework, that's a powerful cocktail for uh, reduced levels of economic activity, slower levels of growth. So uh, I, I first look at a country's secular economic trends, debt and demographics, which gives me the foundation for uh, where the economy should be headed over the next three to five years, let's say, or at least what the gravitational forces in the economy should be over the next three to five years. Then what I do is I look at uh, what are called cyclical economic trends. Uh, you know, as, as well as anyone, if you take the economic cycle from 2010 through 2020, there was no recession in that time period, but we had several uh, very distinct cyclical slowdowns and cyclical accelerations. You know, we had a big cyclical acceleration from 2016 to 2018. Then we had a, you know, cyclical slowdown from 2018, 19, and the Fed was actually, you know, cutting interest rates. Uh, in 2019 before COVID even happened. So even if we don't have a recession, we can have these cyclical slowdowns and cyclical accelerations and asset prices respond very strongly to those, uh, to those cyclical changes. And those cyclical uh, ups and downs in the economy last on average uh, 16 to 18 months. You could have some cycles that last as long as three years. You have some that you know, are about six to eight months. But on average, you're looking at something like a year and a half or two years for these, these broad cyclical ups and downs in the rate of growth and inflation. So uh, I, I 
analyze and define those cyclical trends using what I call coincident indicators. So those coincident indicators are purely objective and they're able to tell me or, or tell uh, you know, the, the analyst or, or the client uh, what exactly is the trend in the economy today? What is the trend in growth? What is the trend in inflation? Uh, and it's very objective. There's no real debate about it. The only debate is where is it heading from here? Is the growth rate going to decelerate or is the growth rate going to accelerate? Is the inflation rate going to come down or is the inflation rate going to go up? And the analysis is mainly focused on the rate of change or the direction of those variables, not so much the absolute level. Uh, and in order to get a good reading of where growth is going six to 12 months in the future or inflation is going six to 12 months in the future, I study what are called leading economic indicators. I'm sure we'll get into those in depth. The study of leading indicators has become quite popular uh, on places like Twitter, uh, but there's actually um, a lot more that goes into it versus just overlaying two lines on a chart, which is sort of what we see a lot of today. Uh, but it is a very serious study, uh, and there is um, some really good research uh, be behind using leading economic indicators, so we can get into that. But that's the general framework of how I approach any economy or, or my analysis. Excellent. Thank you. That's a comprehensive answer. Um, so maybe we can kind of take it step by step and start maybe with, um, so I think at the top, you, over, you, you know, you outlined that the primary driver are dead in demographics, right? Mm -hmm. So within the demographic component, right? Like I, what I think about is really just, you know, like the working age population and the productivity of that population, right? Exactly. Exactly. Um, uh, what is it that in your view of the world kind of defines the forward looking productivity of a country? Mm -hmm. So I think that the biggest factor defining the forward-looking productivity is um, is ultimately um, the debt-to-GDP ratio. And uh, I look at total debt-to-GDP, so that includes public and private sector debt. And the reason I look at that is because when the debt-to-GDP ratio is rising, what that generally indicates to you is that the use of debt is not generating an income stream to uh, increase the GDP producing capacity of the country. So ultimately that means down the road, unless the economy has the benefit of ever lower interest rates, an increasing share of your productive resources will have to be diverted towards repaying the principal and interest. So the, uh, the, the excessive use of debt in my view in the world that we live in today is the, is the predominant driving force behind uh, productivity growth because if the debt to GDP ratio is rising and the economy has to divert an increasing share of its resources to repay, what you generally see is private domestic investment fall pretty sharply. And we've seen that in the United States. If you look at something like uh, the, the uh, percent of investment in structures and equipment, and structures and equipment is a very important part of the economy, which includes things like water systems, railways, airports, bridges, electric grids, hospitals, uh, machinery, factories, uh, all of these things that are very uh, important to, to increase the productivity of the population, uh, those investments tend to be uh, generally reduced in favor of more financial type activities. And when you see an economy um, uh, sort of turn a blind eye or, or reduce the investment in these you know, really uh, productive enhancing areas, you generally tend to see the real uh, rate of growth fall in the future. And uh, 
they're investments that are difficult to make because they generally don't yield benefits to the person making the investment for, for several years down the road. So the, the economy generally needs a high level of savings to fund those investments. And uh, when, when you have an economy that, that goes down the road of increasing indebtedness, savings tends to drop and the rate of investment tends to drop. So uh, that's, that's generally how I think about what's the ultimate driving force behind productivity gains in the economy. That's actually a really elegant and uh, kind of unique way of thinking about this because, um, you know, I, I think that the, the, the productivity and debt kind of idea is now very popular, but mm -hmm. I think um, this is probably the first time I've heard somebody express debt levels as a function of productivity, right? Where mm -hmm. marginal output of the dollar borrowed continues to decline, which means you have to right. continue to level, right? Exactly. And, and you said it exactly right. So if you just inverse the debt to GDP ratio and look at it upside down, it's called the marginal revenue product of debt. And what we see is that in the 1970s and 80s, the US economy was generating something like 80 cents of growth per every dollar of debt. Now it's down to something like 25 cents of, of growth for every dollar of debt. Uh, and I just probably should caveat the, the debt binge that we've seen over the last two years and how that may have impacted things because it is uh, I don't want to say it's unique, but when you live through it in real time, it's different than analyzing a situation uh, three or four decades ago. So whenever um, you know this this debt binge that would happened over the last couple of years was predominantly on the federal level. And when we look at uh, major increases in in debt in any sector, but federal debt uh, more specifically, what uh, what you see is you have to analyze it over a three year window. Because the first half, call it the first year and a half, is when you tend to get the positive benefit of the borrowed funds. So you borrow money, you spend the money, and you get an immediate reaction in growth, which obviously we've, we've seen. Uh, but now we're starting to see the real growth rate deteriorate. Real incomes are falling because of um, you know, the sort of uh, malinvestment of, or, or um, the, the misallocation of resources is probably a better way to say it. Uh, you know, we, we, we borrowed a lot of money, we sent it to people, they, they bought durable goods in a way that was extremely unnatural, which caused a lot of um, uh, problems with supply chains, inflation ran hot, and now it's, you know, damaging real incomes. So now we're getting into the, the second half of this three-year window when we're looking at the, the uh, increase in debt. And this second half is when you're going to see the negative side of the borrowed funds. And what we should see if the uh, academic research proves correct, which it has up until this point, and I see no reason why it wouldn't continue, is that when we look uh, at the net three-year period, which will be something like mid-2023, we should see that um, the economy received no net benefit, or it should be a, a net negative effect of the borrowed funds from 2020. Um, and, and the way that we'll be able to judge that is if we look at the uh, the rate of real GDP per capita, or we just look at the nominal level of real GDP per capita, we should be significantly uh, below the trend line in 2023 that we were on uh, prior to COVID. So the, the delta between our pre-COVID trend line and where we sit in 2023 should be quite a significant gap, meaning that uh, we've lost productivity relative to the trend that we were on before. And I expect that to play out if, on the net three-year period. Right. And I, I think, you know, for the listener, I, I think we should also caveat all of this by saying that it's, it's not binary, that, that debt or, you know, financial assets being added is not necessarily just a bad thing outright. 
it depends on the way the resources are allocated, right? So I think what we saw is something that where we had an immense kind of debt binge, which was partially monetized, right? Going and being injected directly into GDP and GNI, right? Mm -hmm. But when we have that kind of capital formation instead, if we were to have capital formation instead, I think you could potentially end up in, in a different set of outcomes. So would you talk about that a bit? Definitely. So you're, you make a great point here where uh, a use of debt is not always bad. A use of debt that generates an income stream that over time you can repay the principal and interest from that newly formed income stream, that'll ultimately end up reducing the debt to GDP ratio in that three-year window. Uh, it'll increase the velocity of money. It'll increase the money multiplier. It'll increase all of the endogenous variables in the economy. Um, so it's not that um, debt is always bad. If the debt generates an income stream, then it's good. It'll ultimately increase the productive capacity of the economy. The reason that we can, I think, in my opinion, at this point, virtually claim that all uses of debt are bad is because we're so far beyond the diminishing returns threshold at this point where debt to GDP on public and private is 370%, so far past um, you know, the, the, the point where it's a positive effect on the economy for all major sectors, whether that's household, uh, corporate, uh, federal, that uh, there's, there's so much uh, negative of the spending now uh, that you really would need to reverse all of that. You can't add on productive spending now and have it really generate a whole lot of benefits because we're so far beyond that threshold at this point that we have to reverse a lot of what we've done. But the problem, at least on the federal level, is a lot of that's built into law, which would be almost impossible to change. So at this point, I would be um, I think it's possible to have, you know, miraculous improvements in productivity, but I think it would be difficult to find uh, use of capital at this point that can turn around uh, what's already sort of been built into the into the system in terms of debt to GDP. Okay, I, I think that's really good context. And it's it's a it's a nuanced perspective. So what I think is also important is to understand that so the secular picture, it kind of sets your true north, right? Exactly. Um, but it doesn't, you know, these things may not sound great. You know, we have a high debt load, aging population, slowing population growth. These things all sound terrible. But, you know, when it comes to markets and positioning, yeah, that doesn't mean you go out and you short every asset and you just load up on treasuries, right? Totally. Um, totally so right. Maybe, maybe talk about how you start to transition from thinking about this true north into the cyclical yeah. framework. Yeah, it's such a great transition because uh, ultimately, you know, if you look at assets over a 30-year period, you can see them resemble the secular trend, right? That's that's where our you know long-term decline in interest rates comes in. Now, uh, we obviously have a big increase in interest rates now, and we can get into a discussion of whether that's a secular regime change or this is just a, uh, a serious cyclical event. But we'll leave that to the side for a second. So. When, when I'm thinking about transitioning to asset markets, I, that's when I transition to the cyclical trends. I say, okay, let's look at what we call coincident indicators. These are going to define the trend for us. Every economy has four major segments, income, production, consumption, and employment. And those four segments work uh, sort of in an interconnected way where 
more income leads to more consumption, more consumption leads to more production. If you have more production, you need more employment. If you have more employment that feeds back to more income and the cycle starts to spiral upwards, what we call a virtuous economic cycle. It could also work in reverse where less income, less consumption, less production, less employment. Um, so when we're looking at the economy, what I do is I look at what I call a coincident index that takes income, consumption, production, employment, GDP, all of these big things and puts them into one bucket. And then I look at the growth rate. And if the growth rate is increasing two, three, four, 5%, then I say, okay, the economy's in a cyclical upturn. I'd want to have a more optimistic outlook on the world, at least for the next couple of quarters. But if the growth rate's coming down, you know, five, four, three, two, then I say, okay, the cycle is sort of has some downward momentum here. Every, every marginal percentage point we go down, we're getting closer and closer to a recession. I'm going to have a little bit more of a cautious outlook. So where the secular and the cyclical come in is that if you have a 20 or 30 or 40 year trend of slowing growth because of debt and demographics, what's that going to do? It's going to make every cyclical upturn a little bit weaker and a little bit you know, uh, shorter lasting. And it's going to make all the downturns uh, a little bit harder to shake and a little longer lasting. And that's actually proved out in the data. If you go back over the last 30 years and you map these cyclical upturns and cyclical downturns, what, uh, what you find is that the cyclical upturns, going back to 1995, have lasted on average 13 months, but the cyclical downturns have lasted 17 months on average. So the downturns are lasting longer than the upturns. And you say, well, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense because the market has gone up so much over the last 30 years. What's even more amazing is that 90% of the market gains over the last 30 years have come during 40% of the time. 40% of the time, the market is in one of these cyclical upturns, these 12-month on average windows. 90% of the market gains happen there. 60% of the time, the economy is in these downward uh, sort of um, you know, growth slowdowns where the market performance is zero or negative. So that's where your true north comes in. And it gives you, in the back of your mind, a little bit of a bias that says, okay, I'm going to respect the fact that we're in a cyclical upturn. But I know that the secular pressure is so strong that this upturn is going to be quite fleeting. It's going to, it's going to be difficult to sustain this upturn for a period of time. So I'm going to have a little bit more of, um, of a hair trigger on the upturns and a little bit more sensitive uh, to the fact that the economy could, could turn around any moment. And uh, when, when the economy is trending downwards, I have a little bit more confidence in the outlook because I know that gravity is, is working in my favor. Um, so that's sort of how I, I bring the secular into the cyclical and kind of give me a little bit of a bias on whether those upturns are going to be uh, you know, sustained or we're going to give way to a downturn relatively quickly. That's a really good perspective. Um, you know, it's uh, it's interesting that you that you mentioned those distribution of returns because um, I think that this is particularly evident in nominal activity, right? As opposed to real activity. Yes, you have had a decline in real activity as much, but when it comes to nominal activity, that's where this secular downturn has been really prevalent. And then if you slice out the inflation piece, you know we 
we we track what you know the the second derivative kind of the impulse in a lot of different kinds of data so we have a lot of different proprietary measures the interesting thing is it, it uh, lines up really well with what you said um where over the last say since 1965 what we've seen in our inflation impulse me measures is that 52 percent of time of the time um, approximately that much the impulse is actually negative mm -hmm. so you actually have the cycle cycling lower 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 right which is really interesting because if you if you think about it from somebody who's trying to actively allocate in markets, that's an opportunity set that's equally biased. Mm -hmm. right. 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 So, you know, everyone thinks that, oh, yeah, the economy is expanding all the time and you need to just basically be long assets. But when you actually look at the opportunity set these cycles provide you, they're fairly equal. In fact, they've been on inflation. They've been fairly bearish, which has supported treasuries a lot. Right. 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 Um. Yeah, you know, I I think just to take a little step back before we start kind of dissecting how to think about on a forward-looking basis about these cycles, I I'm with you very much about the virtuous cycles between you know income, consumption, production, employment. I'm I'm with you there. What is it that you think that causes kind of the snapback in you know after the virtuous cycle begins? And you know we have so we have true north, we have the cyclical trends which begin mm -hmm. now. What causes the cycle part, right? So, right. what makes the cycle cycle in your in in your thought process? Right. So, I think what what makes the cycle cycle is is credit, um, and credit in in my view ultimately begins uh, with the Federal Reserve and monetary policy. So, when I think about cyclical trends, the starting point for a lot of the uh, forward looking analysis starts with uh, monetary policy. So. If the Federal Reserve um, is uh, making credit more available or making the supply of money more available, uh, that would you know, depress interest rates, let's say, or they would increase the monetary aggregates. Uh, and that would make financing for big ticket purchases cheaper, specifically housing and goods or housing and autos. So if you have a big, you know, easing of monetary policy, uh, increase in the availability of credit, uh, and that credit is priced relatively cheaply, the theory says that consumption will be spurred specifically through your housing and uh, durable goods sectors. Those are extremely high multiplier sectors. So once you get an increase in consumption from housing and goods, that immediately has an impact on the need for production, the need for employment, and then that increases income. And in a perfect world, you get the increase in consumption, you get the, the, the need for production, you hire more employees, and then the increase in employment causes an increase in income, which then su supposed to, in a perfect world, feed back through, um, back through um, to an endogenous increase in in uh, in credit in the economy, so a consumer would then go to the banking sector to to finance um, you know a, a further purchase in housing and goods, uh, and then the cycle tends to break when the Federal Reserve wants to tighten the availability of credit, raise interest rates. It slows the demand for for housing and goods, which reduces the need for production. You know the reduces the need for employment. Income falls. And then the the uh, downward impulse for for housing and goods is is um, yeah feeds through that way. Um, so I think that ultimately what causes the cycle to cycle is the availability and you know 
contraction of credit. And you know, when the economy was in a healthier place 30 or 40 years ago, um, this process happened endogenously, meaning it happened without outside intervention from the Fed or fiscal policy, um, because the money multiplier, um, which is the ratio of uh, broad money to monetary base, was, was, was quite high. Uh, as the economies become weaker and weaker and more over-indebted, that money multiplier tends to compress and it's fallen you know, basically down to a level where it's non-existent. And that means that the economy can't really sustain these cycles on its own. The cycle breaks down too quickly under the elevated levels of indebtedness. And that's when fiscal and monetary policy have to play a larger role in trying to keep that cycle uh, going for as long as possible. But it's always uh, done in an artificial way, which tends to lead to the misallocation of a lot of resources. That all, that all makes sense to me. And in, in, in our nomenclature, we essentially refer to that as a capital cycle. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're, we're looking for conditions where, you know, there's, there's availability and, and optimism to finance new projects with an existing base of increasing income. Um, exactly. You know, uh, and so I, I definitely agree with you that. And I, I think this segues really nicely into um, leading indicators, right? Yep. I, th- I think that there is a lot of conceptual grounding that's required before we start diving into what leading indicators are, because as you mentioned at the outset, there's become this proliferation of just finding things that somehow seem to have a lead by six months and just right, assuming right. that that's the truth. Right. Um, so maybe you can talk a little bit about what the framework is of a leading indicator, yeah. right? So I'll, I'll talk about the whole the whole process of how I look at the situation, what I think people do wrong, what I think makes um, a good leading indicator. So first of all, you need a target, right? So what is it that you're trying to get a lead on, right? I think that's the first thing to establish. And for me, that's the coincident data. That's your income, consumption, production, employment. In a broad sense, that's your GDP, your GDI. Um, Those are your coincident measures of the economy and the the ups and downs in the rate of growth of those coincident indicators generally influences asset prices. So ultimately our target is is asset prices. But we're 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 making the assumption that asset prices will be correlated to the rate of change in economic activity because the rate of change in economic activity has this inexorable link to the rate of change in corporate profits. So we, we are making an assumption here that assets will respond to changes in the economy, but our target is the economy, right? So, okay, we have our target and our target is broad measures of income, consumption, production, and employment. Then we say, okay, how do we know where those indicators are going to go six months in the future? Because that'll tell us where profits are going to go in the future. And that'll give us an idea of whether we should have a uh, sort of a pro-growth bias and want to ha- take you know, uh, a, a beta position to increasing profits, or we want to have a, pos- uh, a, a more defensive outlook that says those profits are going to be decreasing in the future. This is a bad time to, to, to take, uh, take on risk. So a lot of people, as you mentioned, just basically overlay two lines on a chart. Sometimes it's only maybe like a five-year look back or a 10-year look back. And they say, you know, this has happened the last four or five cycles, therefore it's going to happen in the future. Uh, obviously, that's a that's a dangerous way to go about it. It's possible that those indicators could work. There could be, you know, a correlation that that emerged. But when we or when I look at leading economic indicators, I'm looking uh, for um, 
One, it can't just look good on a chart. It has to have a logical correlation to a traditional economic cycle, right? So something that would give an example would be uh, building permits logically would lead new construction, right? It'd be very difficult in a world in the future where you have new construction without a new permit first, right? So there are some parts of an economic cycle or the sequence of events which are going to happen in the same uh, or some things have to happen first, right? So it has to logically uh, have a place in, in the economic sequence. Then it has to have a long enough sample where it can uh, stand the test of time through inflationary cycles, through deflationary cycles. And we don't have too much data that has the luxury of this much time. But if you really want to get um, you know, in, intense about it, you want to find indicators that work you know, before the Fed was, it was in existence, after the Fed was in existence, uh, when you were on the gold standard, when you're not on the gold standard, floating rate, non-floating rate. So you have indicators that work in all these different regimes. And the reason they work is because of the nature by which the cycle of economic activity plays out. So it has to have a logic to it. So then you say, you try and get back to, okay, what starts the sequence? And in my perspective, what, what, gets the cycle going in either the virtuous direction or, or the negative direction is uh, monetary policy, the availability of credit. So um, that sort of starts the sequence in my view, which is radical changes in monetary policy or monetary aggregates. Those changes in monetary aggregates first impact and almost on an immediate basis, interest rates, whether that's short-term interest rates uh, or uh, interest rates in the private economy, like mortgage rates or corporate rates. So now what we have is we have change in monetary policy and we have an almost immediate change in interest rates across the economy. The changes in interest rates, like we mentioned, impact the interest rate sensitive sectors of the economy first. So that would be your housing, your durable goods, anything that you purchase with a financing component, because you're changing, um, you're changing consumer demand by making that, that good more expensive or less expensive because of the financing component. So now I'm going to stop there. What we have there is what I call your long leading indicators or, or, in, or, or movements that happen in the economic cycle that happen before everything else. So you have a change in monetary policy, it impacts interest rates, and then it impacts the housing and goods sector first. That's what sort of gets the sequence going. Then I move into what I call shorter leading indicators, which give us a little bit more of a timely view on what's going to happen in the economy. And then you think, okay, so after the housing market is impacted, what happens then? Well, if you're building a new house, let's say you need to uh, furnish that house with appliances, right? That's ovens, microwaves, refrigerators, furniture, plumbing, uh, you know, pipes, all of this type of stuff. So, it, you know, in a broad sense, what that does is it increases the need for uh, industrial commodities because commodities are what comprise those goods. And it increases, you'd see increases in new orders and that would spur manufacturing activity. So when we go into that shorter leading bucket, we're looking at changes in industrial commodities. We're looking at changes in new orders, manufacturing sentiment. And then ultimately, after it impacts those manufacturers, that's when you'll start to see it spread through to 
the the services sector that impacts most of us and impacts your your broad measures of uh, con, uh, consumption, income, and and employment. So we're looking at what starts the sequence: longer leading indicators, monetary policy, interest rates, the housing sector, and then we're looking at how the changes in the housing sector feed through to changes in new orders, industrial commodities, manufacturing sentiment, and then how the changes in that sector impact your broader coincident data. So that's roughly the framework that I take. That's how I get from the beginning of the cycle to the end of the cycle. Um, so I'll, uh, I'll leave it there. Excellent. Um, so you, you, when you're laying out the framework, you've essentially gone out and rigorously assessed durability, right? Um, but I, I often say this, that we live in the small sample, right? Mm -hmm. um, if you actually think about cycle turning points, you probably have, you know, sample size where n is equal to eight maybe 10. Um, so I think that that mechanical rigor is really important, right? Like understanding the linkages really well, like you've outlined. Um, I think the second leg of it that is underappreciated is constantly reevaluating the persistence, mm -hmm. right? Because you can have a signal miss one time mm -hmm. that doesn't necessarily break the signal. Right. So, you know, in in your work and how do you spend your time trying to figure out whether something is probably going to continue working or something mm -hmm. structurally has changed where something that was leading no longer leads? Right. Okay. So you make a really good point. So for example, let's take the housing sector and let's take a conventional leading indicator like building permits. Um, most people are of the opinion that building permits are roughly good leading indicator, you know, tied to interest rates, tied to the housing sector. In the 2000 recession, though, the housing sector barely slowed at all. So you'd say, well, the housing sector uh, didn't slow ahead of that one. It, it, it had a false signal. It was a bad leading indicator. And you'd be correct in saying that. So the way that I approach that is because I bucket the indicators into that longer leading, shorter leading, and then coincident, any single indicator like building permits is completely subject to fail at a turning point. You're never going to find an indicator that if you go back over 10 business cycles has a 10 for 10 track record. The other thing, you know, you know a really good indicator would, would have, you know, eight out of 10 or nine out of 10. Um, and also the lead lag times that, uh, you know, myself or maybe an analyst like yourself publishes when you say building permits leads by about 12 months, that's an average of some cycles. Maybe it leads by 18, some cycles, maybe it leads by six, 19, 10, and then an average of 12, right? So there is a lot of variability from cycle to cycle that we try and boil down to an average of 12, let's say. So the one thing that I do is I look at all the indicators in isolation, full well recognizing that any single indicator is subject to fail. But then I also look at all of the leading indicators together as a composite basket. And the reason I do that is because while any single indicator is subject to fail at a turning point, it's significantly less likely that the collective basket of all indicators fails at a turning point. Since when I construct these baskets, they are you know, from different sectors of the economy, they're from different reporting agencies, they have different methodologies. So when the whole basket is moving together or the aggregate of the whole basket is moving together, that's a good sign to me that, okay, maybe building permits, like, you know, for example, building permits hasn't gone down all that much right now, right? It's down maybe like 15% from its peak. 
but uh, new home sales are down like 35% from their peak or existing home sales are down 35% from their peak. So, uh, and, and within building permits, single family are falling quite rapidly while multifamily are actually still rising. So there are always nuances from cycle to cycle. How do you, how do you know what's a signal and what's noise? To me, it's the collective signal from the whole basket. So I know that if my whole longer leading basket is trending lower, that means that the constellation of monetary aggregates, interest rate aggregates, and, uh, and housing market indicators, the, the whole constellation are trending in one direction. Now, for that to give me a false signal, it would have to basically say that the, the, the whole sequence by which our economy is structured has now completely changed, where changes in monetary policy, rapid changes in interest rates are no longer impacting changes in consumption or employment. And if that's the paradigm, then the, the whole paradigm of Federal Reserve and monetary policy is completely broken because they're, they're, the whole purpose for them being there is having changes in monetary policy ultimately impact changes in employment and inflation. So the way that I, I assess um, you know, the durability of an indicator is really by bucketing it into a basket of other extremely strong, reliable indicators that all have eight out of 10 track records or nine out of 10 track records, and then taking the signal from the collective versus any one in isolation. That's interesting because again, that's a little bit like portfolio construction, right? You're, um, you're, you're, you're diversifying your bets to essentially protect your hit ratio for your portfolio, right? Like that's, mm -hmm. that's a, that's a similar kind of analogy. Um, I think one thing that, you know, comes to mind is when is it that you decide that you want to drop something either from as a, a sub index or you want to drop an index entirely. And that sounds like a, a complex decision. So how do you go about navigating that? Yeah, it is a very complex decision. So a lot of times what I will do is I'll test the indicator back as long as I possibly can, right? Across all the different uh, cycles. And I'll assess the, the lead time and lag time ahead of uh, cycle turning points. Uh, I'll assess the, the volatility of the index. So you know, what's the, um, what's the sort of standard error in the, in the report? Uh, how large are the revisions, right? So for example, um, new home sales has been a uh, reliable leading indicator of the business cycle. And it's a good report. Uh, it's published by a government agency. Uh, it's got a long history uh, and it makes sense with the economic cycle because the the volume activity in the new construction sector obviously has implications down the economic sequence. Um, but there are some negatives to the report, right? What are the negatives? The negatives are that it's got the largest standard error of of any report. Any any given month is is you know unbelievably volatile to the point where you know the number comes in and you can't trust that within two months that number is going to be anywhere close to where it was when it was reported. Now, three months after it's reported, the series looks pretty good and it's stable, but you know it takes a couple of months because the volatility of that number is just so off the charts. Um, the good thing about you know business cycle analysis is is two months is not the you know longest period of time. It's a reasonable amount of time to wait. But then in 1990, something like the uh, uh, National Association of Home Builders uh, Housing Market Index comes out. Now it doesn't have the same um, sample as new home sales, doesn't go back to the 60s or 70s. 
but it's a sort of like the PMI for home builders. Uh, and you can test, okay, does this have a reasonable correlation to new home sales? Yes. Uh, is the volatility of the index a lot less? Yes. Uh, is the timeliness of the report better? Well, definitely yes, because it's one of the most timely indicators we have. We're sitting here recording this on October 24th. We don't have any data for the October reporting period yet, except for the home builder sentiment index. So it's very, very timely. The revisions are very low, if, if, if any at all. And it's got a reasonable correlation to uh, something like new home sales, right? So um, going through that process is, is something... Uh, some somewhat of a condensed version of how I would go about maybe substituting out an indicator like new home sales and substituting in something like National Association of Home Builders, uh, picking up timeliness, you know, improving the the net revisions of the index without giving up any of the reliability as far as the signal uh, on on the turning point. So it, it, it's a process um, that 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 takes time. And then what I'll do is I will basically run with two composites, one with the old uh, new home sales in it, perhaps, and one with the National Association of Home Builders. And I'll sort of track both of the uh, composites together, see, are they performing the same? Uh, are the movements the same? Uh, and it's an ongoing process, uh, but it does involve, um, you know, uh, the bias is always that a new indicator really has to uh, overwhelm uh, in terms of its positives to substitute something out. So it's 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 not common that I'll really drop an indicator uh, completely and add something new. It's, you know, happens, you know, in, in my work, at least, you know, once or twice every couple of years, perhaps. That's very insightful. I appreciate the detail. Thank you. Um, I think that's a that's a good picture on the economic front. So, you know, I, I'd, before we start transitioning into kind of where we are today, I, I'd like to get a little bit more, you know, uh, color on how you think about markets in kind of these contexts. Do you have a similar sort of secular and cyclical framework when you're thinking about markets, other than, of course, you know, markets reflecting the economy? Right. So the way that I uh, approach markets or portfolio or asset allocation is um, I try and approach it from a pragmatic sense understanding that people that listen to this will be 20 years old, they'll be 70 years old, they'll have different goals, they'll have different income, some people will be saving, some people will be depleting their capital, everyone's got a different uh, portfolio setup. So I always start there. Uh, because when we start throwing out recommendations or, or you know, positioning ideas, it's important to know that that's going to mean something slightly different for everybody. So what, what I first say is, I think it's important, in my view, to pick a portfolio strategy that's right for uh, your personal preferences. That's you know your investing time frame, your volatility preferences, um, you know uh, the the you know all, all the various different things that could impact uh, individual investors. So maybe if you're 30, 100% stocks is a reasonable allocation for you. If you're 75, maybe it's not. Right? You'll have you'll have a different. A baseline portfolio will have a different preference for volatility. So once you go about understanding who you are as an investor, I would recommend that people pick a baseline portfolio that makes sense to them. And there's thousands of different portfolios out there that have extensive research on, uh, you know, balanced allocations, you know, all weather, permanent portfolio, 60, 40, all stocks, whatever the case may be, they're all basically 
baskets of long duration financial assets for the most part, because that's ultimately how you outperform cash over time is you hold some basket of long duration financial assets. So you pick a portfolio that makes sense for you. Maybe for someone it's all weather, maybe for someone it's 60, 40, maybe for somebody it's, um, you know, 90 or, or, you know, 60, 30, 10, whatever the case is. So once you have your baseline, you know what your home base is. So you say, okay, if I have no idea what's going on, or I don't even want to try uh, and, and pick up alpha, I'm just going to ride this portfolio beta forever. And that is your personal beta. Then what I'll do is I'll say, okay, given what I believe are the cyclical trends, which are influenced by the secular, coming over the next six to 12 months, I'm going to tilt my portfolio allocation in the direction of the assets that are likely to outperform given what I believe the economic environment is going to be. So if you have an all-weather allocation, let's say that's got stocks, bonds, commodities, and gold, and you believe we're heading for stagflation, maybe you want to overweight the gold allocation versus the treasury bond allocation. If you think we're headed to a deep recession, maybe you want to increase the treasury bond allocation and reduce the stock allocation. Um, and that process can, can be as complex or as simple as you want it to be. The, the magnitude of the shifts that you make can be as large or as small as you're comfortable with. But the basic idea is to pick a, a, a portfolio beta or a portfolio construction that's your home base that you could always return to in a time of indecision. And then when you do have confidence about the economic outlook, simply tilt into the asset that's, that's most uh, appropriate. And what that does is, is it allows you to uh, benefit from what I believe is one of the a uh, few free lunches, which is um, that over a 20, 30 year period, the beta of a diversified portfolio is likely to outperform cash. And I think it's important for most investors uh, to, to hold a, a, a beta allocation like that over a long period of time, um, you know, uh, uh, irrespective of how much alpha you're trying to pick up along the way. Right. And, um, you know, going off that, I would, I would think of that kind of like as an alpha overlay, right? So you, you, you're, you're collecting exactly a risk right. premium you're, exactly you're, right. you're thinking you're, and you're collecting a risk premium. And then on top of that, you tilt in what would hopefully be an alpha generating, you know, proposition, allowing exactly you to pick up excess returns one way or that's the exactly other, either right. by not losing in something or. That's exactly um, right. And, and, and you know, uh, if I think um, if you're, yeah, if you're ahead. a, you know, let's say you're a 401k investor and, you know, you could, you could have your portfolio be 90% allocated to, to the, to the beta that you choose. And then you can tilt 5% around the edges, right? So, you know, over a long period of time, maybe the portfolio generates 10% average rate of return. And if you do really well, you'll be at 12. If you do poorly, you'll be at eight. Neither scenario is going to really hurt you all that much. It's just a small uh, tilts around the edges, or you could be much more aggressive and try and go for something that's you know, 50% beta, 50% alpha, you could sort of tailor the magnitudes of your shifts around how much how comfortable you are with deviating from from the ultimate beta of what your portfolio generates. So I guess the question that that comes out of it is also, um, does your secular view on things kind of inform your preferences for beta? So it, it it does, but really what it what it does for me is is it informs the the cyclical pivots or or how long I'm willing to hold, uh, you know the the sort of assets that do well when the environment is is trending down versus the assets that are um, 
going to do well when the economy is trending up. So I don't necessarily change the the home base allocation based on the secular trends, but I will um, have a implicit bias in some of the assets uh, that do well in that regime. So if let's say hypothetically my beta was a 60-40 portfolio, 60% stocks, 40% bonds, um, I would say that if you if you sampled my holding periods over uh, 10 years, uh, you're going to find that that my tilt uh, in favor of treasury bonds, let's say, will be persistently higher than the baseline, that being informed by the secular trends. I'm actually uh, in favor of that approach because I think that it's a clear distinction between your beta and your alpha overlay, right? Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of people have secular views, which are embedded into their beta portfolio, which ends up being Im an implicit bet, right? Which which is essentially an alpha, right? So if, for example, you know, if um, I were using a framework and I think that we're going to be in a um, secular deflation, now if I if my beta base is just treasuries because of this, I'm implicitly just betting on treasuries, right? So I'm I'm trying to generate alpha on that bet, and I I think that that is a dangerous thing. So I, I like this idea of having. A beta, I mean, I have, and, you know, we at Prometheus, we have our own views of what like a good beta is uh, mm -hmm. relative to just like 60, 40 or something like that. Yep. But that's, yep. that's a separate issue. And those, and um, those can get as complicated or simple as, as you choose, right? You know, there, there are some uh, portfolio constructions that can be extremely superior, uh, but then it also boils down to who you are as an investor, right? The, the 401k type allocators you really only have choice between stocks and bonds for the most part. And it can get increasingly difficult because, you know, a lot of people accumulate significant amounts of money in their 401k and it's really not even stocks and treasury bonds, it's stocks or corporate credit, which effectively the same thing, right? So then you say, okay, well, now I'm a 60, 40 portfolio investor. Maybe I could do a baseline that's 80, 20 stocks and cash, right? Because cash would be better than corporate because corporate's the same thing as treasury. Uh, or, or corporate's the same thing as stocks. So maybe in a downturn, my I know my home base is 80-20. So in a downturn, I'm 60% stocks, 40% cash, but then in an upturn, I'm 100%. You know, so it really kind of comes down to what what best can you uh, can you achieve with the setup that you have? That makes total sense to me. Um, and I think that the last thing before we start delving into today, because I'm really excited to talk about today's setup, um, is your framework kind of lends itself really well to an attractive but very difficult idea, which is counter-cyclical allocation, right? Um, so how do you think about tilting? So because of the, the lead lag times between leading indicators, coincident indicators, and how quickly the market reacts, it's a difficult question because there are some cycles where a peak in coincident data will perfectly coincide with peak in asset markets. There are some times when coincident data will peak ahead of asset markets, and there are some times where asset markets will peak ahead of coincident data. So it can be it can be difficult in uh, you know do I do I wait for asset markets to make the turn? Do I incorporate some sort of trend following overlay? The way that I do it is a sequential process where. Uh, every step along the way, I gain increased confidence in the forward outlook. So I have, you know, my long leading indicators will will move first. Have they fully moved from an upturn to a downturn? Yes. So then that is shorter leading indicators. Have they fully moved from an upturn to a downturn? Yes. Okay. Now I'm looking at my coincident indicators. Uh, have, you know, 
one of the four coincident indicators moved down. Yes. Okay. Now two of the four coincident indicators have moved down. Okay. Boom. That's probably enough confidence for me to make a full asset allocation pivot. Um, there's, there's enough evidence there where the chances that those other coincident indicators don't fall and asset prices follow is, um, is very unlikely, you know, but then there are other environments where, uh, the economy was in a downturn, let's say, uh, in the beginning of 2018. The beginning of 2018, it was clear the economy was going to begin slowing. And you had sufficient evidence to make that determination, let's say, by the beginning of Q2 of 2018. Uh, but asset markets didn't necessarily cooperate with that view until really Q4 of 2018. So uh, in, in my framework, uh, because I'm trying to capture the majority of these moves across multiple cycles, I'm personally willing to withstand some of that volatility on the lead lag time because I know that in a cycle in the future, that lag of two months could be a lead of two months or it could be a lead of one month or, or three months where if I incorporate a process like that over 20 years, on average, I will uh, probably pick up alpha on most of these turning points where uh, focusing on getting the inflection points right, I think is where most of the alpha will come from versus trying to optimize for that one month lead, two month lead, three month lead. So uh, my personal process involves allowing for a little bit of volatility around those turning points uh, where some people may um, choose an approach of scaling in, right? Maybe I'll put a third of my allocation in on this step, a third of my allocation in on the next step, and then a third. All of these things are perfectly reasonable approaches. I'm not convinced that any one is particularly better than the other. Uh, I, I tend to make the allocation pivot uh, determinant by changes in the economic data uh, and, and let the asset markets, uh, you know, the gravitational force ultimately move to where I believe that they're going. Uh, and then you say, well, when would you get stopped out of a position? It would have to, again, come from uh, the economic data. Um, some people may disagree. Uh, some people may be a little bit more market focused than I am. Um, I'm a little bit, you know, my bias is towards you know, economic cycles versus asset uh, markets. So I'm going to basically stop myself in or stop myself out based on changes in the economic data, not changes in price signal. That's definitely a unique perspective. Um, I, I think we have a really good picture now of um, how you kind of think about the world, how you think about cycles and how that kind of fits into your asset allocation framework. So thank you for taking the time to explain that. Um, I think it's a good junction to transition into where we are today and kind of applying this framework. So, you know, why don't you outline for us kind of where we are in the economic cycle and how we kind of got here? Okay. So Going back to to COVID, we obviously had this you know unbelievable man-made recession, which only lasted two or three months. Then we had successive rounds of fiscal stimulus that were heavily supported by monetary policy, and uh, the economy began um, a very strong cyclical upturn. Now that upturn was a result of one, just the natural rate of change of going from, you know, negative 100% to has to be up from there, uh, two to the, um, you know, massive stimulus that came with it. The problem I see with, with what happened is whenever you have really large amounts of government spending, 
um, that government spending tends to um, lead to significant uh, misallocation of resources. And in this particular case, while it was done with good intentions, flooding the household sector with money led to um, an unbelievable surge in demand for durable goods, which really destroyed supply chains around the world and to some extent an irreparable way in, in some areas. This obviously led to significant problems with uh, you know getting um, things were back ordered, increases in price because of shortages that really damaged real incomes. Um, so as a natural consequence of the inflation rate rising, almost a pseudo supply chain recession where the supply curve shifts inward and you get a higher price level, but a lower level of real growth, what happened was the cycle started to give way to a cyclical downturn. Now, the cyclical downturn began in the beginning of 2021. We had in the spring of 2021, the growth rate peaked, uh, stimulus began to wear off, supply chain pressures began to increase prices, real incomes fell, and the consumer just naturally started to, to pull back and, and growth started to fall back towards trend. Now, um, inflation, in my view, was actually beginning to follow growth downward towards the end of 2021. A lot of leading indicators of inflation had started to roll over. And if you look in January of 2022, broad commodity price growth was about 5% at a, at a cyclical low. Long-term inflation expectations were 1.9%. And uh, there was you know, only one or two hikes expected as a result of that. Then uh, Russia invaded Ukraine and commodity price growth went from 5% to 100% in matter of you know two or three weeks and uh also caused a significant problem with food and just the commodity complex in general this caused uh inflation to have sort of a resurgence where uh it went from you know like a six-month growth rate from seven percent to ten percent and central banks panicked uh as a result of this movement understandably so where we now uh moved into a a serious tightening regime. What was interesting, though, is that the tightening regime coincided with a cyclical downturn in growth, which is extraordinarily uncommon. Normally, when economic growth is decelerating, the Fed is either standing put or cutting interest rates. And that's where the negative correlation between stocks and bonds uh, is born from. The fact that when the economy is decelerating and going into a recession, that's generally bad for stock prices because profits are falling, but bond prices provide support because the Fed is easing monetary policy or at the very least not tightening monetary policy. But we moved into an environment where the Fed was forced to significantly tighten monetary policy while economic growth was slowing. So stocks are falling because economic growth is slowing and the discount rate is rising and bonds are not providing support because the Fed is uh, raising interest rates to combat inflation. So where are we at now in terms of the sequence? So now, as we sit here in October, coincident measures of real growth have fallen basically back to trend, slightly below. My calculation is that real growth is running at about 1.8% on a trending basis right now, not in a recession. 
that growth rate is being supported by employment and production, income and consumption are significantly weaker. But in aggregate, growth is trending at about 1.8%. The Fed has engaged in a unbelievable monetary tightening, you know, record by, by all accounts in terms of the speed. And when we look at our sequence, we can see that uh, there's a significant contraction in the monetary base. Uh, deposits in the banking system are now contracting. You could, you know, some people have problems with M2, but you can look at any monetary aggregate that you want, and they're all virtually contracting right now. Interest rates have moved up significantly, both in public treasury rates and private corporate or private mortgage rates. The housing sector has slowed dramatically in terms of the volume of transactions, uh, and the yield curve is deeply inverted. So those signals there are evidence that monetary restraint is fully embedded in the, in, the, in, the, in the system. The Fed is tightening and it's fully entrenched in the cycle. So we have a massive monetary contraction, a rise in interest rates, and a dramatic slowdown in housing. So what we should be on the lookout next for is really sharp declines in industrial-based commodities big declines in new orders for these manufactured goods that may go into housing and, and other residential investment, and uh, just general depressed sentiment from manufacturers in general, maybe elevated inventory at retailers. Uh, and we are seeing the very early signs of all of that. So the ISM new orders index is contracted for three of the last four months. It's down at something like 40, 47, I, I believe that it is. The growth rate of uh, industrial commodities is declining at a 22% annualized rate. Um, the only component of the short leading indicators that hasn't fully given way to a recessionary-like reading is initial jobless claims. So the way that I see the situation now is we have coincident indicators that are not quite recessionary yet. They're declining, but they're not recessionary. The earliest indicators like monetary policy, the housing market, fully recessionary. The, the short leading indicators are now borderline recessionary. The only ones that are not are really employment. So to me, that gives, that gives me a strong indication that over the next three to six months, there's a strong likelihood that those coincident indicators are going to be pushed very close, if not into recessionary territory, with the employment numbers being the laggards and the, the consumer and, and income measures being the, the ones that lead us into a recession. So on, on a growth basis over the next three to six months, my view is very much that the economy falls into a recession, whether the Fed stops tightening today or not. I believe that that's already entrenched in the system. So as far as inflation, I, I look at inflation as a money price wage spiral. A lot of people, when they read textbooks, they, they hear inflation is a wage price spiral. I don't believe that this is correct. I believe this is inaccurate. Um, and you can just think about it in logic sense. No employee goes to their employer and um, says, you know, inflation is going to rise six months from now. I'd like a preemptive raise. And the employer grants the, the, the raise. It doesn't generally work that way. Uh, what, what tends to happen in, in, in practice or in, in the actual sequence of events is you have a major monetary acceleration, then prices in the economy start to rise, 
And then employees go to their employers and say, prices are rising. My real income is falling. I demand a raise. And then in a perfect world, they get a raise above the rate of inflation. Um, so when the Fed began a very significant monetary deceleration in the beginning of 2022, the first thing that we should see is not a decline in CPI inflation. The first thing we should see is a general decline in the price level across the whole economy. And when we think about the price level, we can see that asset prices are falling quite considerably. Um, you know, freight rates are falling, truck rates are falling, um, commodity prices are falling, oil, even oil prices, which were super, uh, you know, supply constraints. That was the narrative came down. Copper prices came down, even though the narrative was that the green movement was going to keep copper prices elevated. Used car prices have come down. All of the, you know, real-time measures of the price level in the economy are responding to the monetary contraction. Now, that process simply needs to be sustained. If the process is sustained, then ultimately the decline in prices will impact employment and then wages will respond to the change in employment. Um, the process doesn't need to be intensified. And I think where we find ourselves now, and I'll take a break after this, is that that process, that money price wage spiral takes time. The Fed, having acted very late in, in responding to this inflation spike, in my view, are hoping that if they do more in terms of magnitude, they'll make the process faster in terms of speed. But the problem is it just doesn't work that way. They can hike rates to 9% today. The CPI report that comes in for October is not going to react at all to that increase in interest rates to 9%. So I think that the Fed is going to make a mistake or already has in both directions where they've been significantly late to this uh, inflation problem. And I think that they're going to significantly overdo uh, the interest rate increases. I think they probably already have, and that's going to lead to a more uh, significant downturn in the economy uh, in 2023 than most people, including the Fed, are prepared for. That was an excellent answer. And um, the complexity reflects the kind of situation that we have today. So I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, I think I'd like to tease apart a lot of things and 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 kind of get into a lot of different components of that. So I, I think the first part, right, um, that, I, that I want to kind of relate it back to the framework, right? How much of this slowdown that we're seeing now and prospectively in the future is a function of the lack of that endogenous virtuous cycle that you were talking mm -hmm. about coming out of COVID, right? Because we had income increase without any production essentially happening mm -hmm. and that translating into spending and all kinds of different, right. you know, right. forms of activity. Right. And that's not to be judgmental about stimulus. The thing is that on a forward looking basis, that matters because if we don't have the roots of that, you know, that virtuous cycle in place, mm -hmm. the forward looking prospects for growth are not really that good, right? Which lends credence to kind of your view. So, Maybe could you talk to me about that a little bit? Yeah, it's such a good point. So I think that um, initially, when the economy peaked in Q1, uh, or I'll call it call it March or April of uh, 2021, by peak, I mean the, the highest level of real growth. Uh, that peak was um, a large part was simply the uh, the base effect of just comparing to uh, the beginning of 2020. And then a large part of that was 
because of the comparisons to record stimulus. So when the economy started to cool through the beginning part of 2021 and into the ending part of 2021, I think that most of that slowdown was um, the ebbing of fiscal stimulus. I don't think there was a lot of um, vicious economic cycle dynamics that were playing out at that point. Once the supply pressures became you know, longer lasting than most people believed into 2021 and into 2022, and then compounded by the Russia situation, which gave the second leg to inflation, we saw uh, real incomes take a second step function lower. And I think that at that point, the economy started to uh, uh, enter more of a uh, vicious economic cycle or a negative economic spiral uh, through business cycle dynamics where real incomes were significantly lowered. Fiscal stimulus was also on its way out. So even if you look at something like disposable personal income, which includes the stimulus payments, the level of income today is significantly below the pre-COVID trend line. So there's a significant amount of of demand destruction in terms of unit volume that occurred in the beginning part of 2021 and into the uh, 2022, excuse me, and into the middle of 2022 from the income angle. Uh, and I think that those dynamics have now been reinforced because of the contractionary monetary policy. So I would say in the beginning of this, it was just a uh, unusual uh, rebound out of COVID plus some fiscal stimulus that caused a really artificial level of growth that naturally started to ebb with no significant negative business cycle dynamics that were ongoing. As you moved into late 21, and certainly after Russia and Ukraine, the destruction of real income and then compounded by monetary tightening led to a significant decline in income. And that's pulling uh, the real rate of consumption or unit volume of consumption down Production and employment are staying elevated, but given what we know about those cyclical dynamics, we have some idiosyncrasies of this cycle keeping production and employment elevated because some supply chain issues. But there's only a matter of time before production and employment, you know, sort of react to the gravity of income and consumption. So I think that we just started to really see the negative uh, spiral of, of the cycle here. And, and I think that over the next three to six months is one that's going to be much more evident in the coincident data. Right. And I, you know, to add some color on the production thing, we, you know, we spend a lot of time trying to understand kind of what's happening with production and uh, employment data today, because the resiliency, while consistent with previous stag stagflationary periods is, you know, it's, it's, it's still something to, to note, right? Um, what we've actually seen is that there's actually a, a lot of nominal effect in what's happening with production data, because most people think that production, industrial production is meant to be real data. But um, what doesn't get noted often is that uh, the relative contributions of uh, production components in industrial production actually reflect nominal data. Um, so the largest contribution today in uh, industrial production is actually energy. Right, so you have uh, energy goods and things like that, and the scaling of that weight rises as commodity prices rise. Mm -hmm. So as a result, you end up having uh, an industrial production index which is biased towards energy during a commodity bull market. Um, right. And uh, I think that that's one of the things that really gets missed that you have a lot of nominal effects both in you know employment and in production. And I and I guess the 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 question that goes that 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 comes to mind is 
what is the next step that you know really drives these things lower production and employment because i think that that those two things have a very they're what's going to elicit a potential reaction from the fed eventually right right, right. exactly so you're you're completely right that as, as it stands now, real growth is too high for recessionary conditions, and it's too high to warrant a Fed pivot. But uh, our our 1.8 trend in real growth that I mentioned is a function of four percent production growth and three and a half percent employment growth, meaning that your income and consumption numbers are almost at 0.5. Right. So your your consumer, your income, those are basically recessionary already. But you have these really high levels of production and employment. And if, what I actually did was those are my four major coincident indicators. And I said, okay, the average of production and employment minus the average of income and consumption, what's the spread there? And the spread is, is almost three percentage points and it's the, the highest spread ever, right? So there's a unusual, it's a unusual from, from a cyclical standpoint. Uh, I actually came at it a slightly different way. It was really interesting what you, what you said. When I look at the industrial production numbers, I say that the average or the total index is hovering around 4% annual growth. Um, 40% of that growth is coming from autos and aerospace. Uh, so autos are autos and aerospace you know, as an average together are running something like 14% uh, compared to four for the index, giving a 40% boost. What's really interesting is that normally we see production growth turn down rather quickly because when the Fed tightens monetary policy, that impacts housing and autos first, or it should. That's the normal progression of the cycle. And when it impacts housing and autos, then auto producers slow their rate of production because they're seeing a slowdown in demand. But what's really interesting and uh, uh, sort of a nuance of this cycle is because autos were so depressed because of the supply chain issues, there were no sales. And there was no auto production going on for a long period of time. Now that supply chains are so sort of starting to, to normalize a bit, uh, a lot of uh, manufacturers, autos, aerospace, are getting a lot of parts that they didn't have six months ago. So a lot of this production, in my opinion, was production that was scheduled to occur three, four, five months ago. That's really happening now because once the part comes in, uh, they're still going to produce it. They're not going to just leave the part idle in, in the factory. So uh, there was a, a a big lag in in production from the way that the cycle normally plays out in a sector that normally turns down first, which is now turning down uh, in a lagged fashion. And when you look at the employment level for uh, uh, transportation employees, the growth rate's accelerating where normally that's a sector that leads employment lower. So uh, I find a lot of this production, uh, and of course, if production stays elevated, you need employees or people to, to do the producing. So I think that uh, production growth is uh, artificially elevated by about 200 basis points. Uh, and if the Fed sustains this monetary tightening through Q1, which I believe that they will, and by monetary tightening, all I mean is that they don't pivot and radically ease monetary policy, right? If they, if they hike rates to 475 instead of five, I don't think it's a material difference, um, is that the consumer or the, the, the unit volume of consumption is going to remain significantly depressed. Uh, I think we're already seeing that. 
And once you work through some of these production backlogs, you're going to see a, a sharp step function drop in the level of production growth. And you're going to see sort of a, a purge of employment. Uh, but it's going to happen with a little bit more of a lag than normal. And it, it's sort of similar to the 1973 recession. If you look at employment growth now, employment growth is about 3.3%. But if you look at the month the recession started, going back to the 1940s, on average, employment growth is usually about 1% when the recession starts, and it's 3.3% now. So you say we can't have a recession because employment growth is too strong. However, in the 1973-74 recession, the month the recession began, employment growth was 3.3%. Um, so you didn't have job losses until something like six to eight months after the recession already began. So I believe that the consumer is going to lead us into this recession, not from a balance sheet perspective or not from a default perspective, but just from a raw pullback in the consumption of goods. That's going, and, and because it's such a high multiplier sector, that's going to lead to slowdown in volume at the ports, then the housing market, the transaction volume is going to slow down. Uh, and uh, eventually, producers will have worked through all of their backlogs and they'll have no new orders coming in. And eventually, at that point, they'll have a really sharp reduction in their uh, production level and they'll get rid of a lot of employment because productivity is falling off a cliff given the, the elevated level of employment with really sub-levels of real growth. What we've been seeing actually is that, you know, you can think of um, real income as just a function of, uh, you know, the, the cumulative uh, wage received per hour, right? Mm -hmm. And you can think of the level of employment. Exactly. If you strip out the employment component, it's uh, your real wages are negative. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So we're already in contraction. So I think that this is really important too, right? Understanding that leading data matters, but if you can understand lagging data on on an incremental basis, all we need is we need employment to halve in a in on a year over year change basis, and you'll be in contraction. You don't need it to go into contraction to actually right. be in a recession. Right. Right. Um, I think that's really important. And the the autos component is fascinating to me today because um what we are seeing is most of this order demand that's coming from retailers and wholesalers it's not making its way to consumers anymore so the final demand on autos is actually not passing through so if you look at real final sales of autos they they're, they're, they're already in contraction yeah way way down yeah so now when we look at the three things really that in our view are keeping this kind of economy going it's inventories employment and production right it's yep. it's these yep. three things and each one of those are physically bounded there's only you can only increase inventory so much exactly on the current trajectory if we keep having employment grow at the current trajectory we will hit zero percent unemployment by 2024 <laughs> um and production is very similar energy uh energy capacity utilization is approximately at 98 percent mm-hmm there's only so much more capacity we can add and the lead time on adding new capacity is extremely large. So extremely the, I, I'm very much with you on, on, the, on the growth page. I think the, the interesting thing that comes to mind where we differ a little bit is uh, the inflation picture, right? Mm -hmm. So maybe you can talk a little bit about, I think you mentioned that the Fed may have overdone it already. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk a little bit about the inflationary pressures in place that the Fed may have already contained in your view or mm -hmm. you know needs to contain right 
Okay. So again, when I think about inflation, I'm thinking about the money price wage spiral. So when I look at the cycle of inflation, I say, okay, the federal reserve has uh, successfully engineered a significant monetary deceleration. That part is uh, um, unambiguous. The price level is starting to come down anecdotally and, you know, just based on market prices and things like that. So to me, that says the monetary policy is biting. It's working. And all that means to me is that it needs to be sustained. Uh, increasing the, the uh, terminal rate to 6% in hopes that the CPI comes down faster um, isn't going to uh, prove to have that many benefits. And in my view, it's going to undermine their ability to sustain the tightening for as long as they need to because it increases the risk that you have some sort of irreparable market credit event. So what I mean by that is if they were to in increase rates to three and a half percent and unwind the balance sheet, as they've suggested, my analysis says that by the end of Q1 23, they'll likely have removed sufficient liquidity that inflation will come down to 2% later in 2023. Um, but that requires them to hold monetary policy and a tightening stance until uh, the end of Q1 and then refrain from significant easing until probably Q2 of 23. Now, that's a long time from now. That's eight months from now, basically, without monetary easing. If the Fed hikes rates in a hyperbolic sense to 9% today, the chances that you make it until uh, Q2 of 23 are extremely low because of the probability that you engineer a credit event that requires uh, attention. So my fear is in their quest to get inflation down really fast, they have overdone the level of tightening that's going to result in a significant turmoil in some market somewhere, hard to say exactly where or when, that requires attention. And the probability that we make it until Q2 of 23, which I believe is what's necessary to neutralize a lot of this liquidity, is, is reduced. And where I'm becoming concerned is the housing market began slowing really dramatically uh, at the end of last year. So it's called December of 21. Whenever you look back at soft landings uh, across time, all the soft landings were engineered because of preemptive monetary easing at sort of the first sign of weakness in the housing market. We now have volumes in the housing market that have contracted 31% for new and existing homes from, from the peak. To put that in perspective, uh, the housing market peaked at the end of 2005. By July of 2007, volumes were down about 30%. And the Fed started easing monetary policy at that point. Uh, then, but it was too late, essentially. The, the recession was already baked in the cake. We have housing volumes that are down, again, 31% now. Uh, you've had the housing market that's been in a downturn for over a year. And based on what I just outlined, the housing market shouldn't expect to get any form of relief until the end of the summer of 2023, right? Mid 2023. That means you're going to have a almost a two-year downturn in the housing market uh, without any attention. I don't think there's any precedent for that. And what that 
generally portends to the severity of the downturn and the, uh, you know, potentially how prolonged the downturn can be, I think is more than the Fed anticipates and more that the market community anticipates. Um, and as a result of that, I think that uh, by the time they get around to easing, the situation in the housing market will be somewhat unsalvageable, leading to ultimately a bigger downturn than, than they're expecting here. So that's where I believe that they've gone a little bit overboard. Now, it's a very, very delicate situation because the point at which they've done enough tightening won't be reflected in core PCE or core CPI. When they've done a sufficient amount of tightening, based on history, core CPI will still be significantly above their target. And what I mean by that is, historically, they always cut interest rates before CPI peaks. So if, if they're waiting for core CPI to come to two before easing, that's going to be you know, another eight months from now. And I'm not sure that the really critically important sectors like the housing market can withstand volumes being down 40 or 50% over a two-year period. It's interesting because I think that the, the the entity that really can't handle this more than anything else is the treasury. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, everyone's looking for the next thing to blow up and I'm running around telling people the thing that's blowing up is right in front of you. Mm-hmm. Um, because the the environment we're in, I think that you're right. But I wonder if we then are in for something which is similar to a re-repeat of the 70s, right? A rerun of the 70s where you needed the Fed to back off. Of course, mm-hmm. in that situation, they backed off because they thought they had managed to tame inflation, right? Mm-hmm. The question is, if they go too far too fast, do they need to you know, take their foot off the gas? And, mm-hmm. prob- and potentially, do you think that that re- reignites inflationary pressure it at that could. moment? It very much could. It very much could. And that's, that's a big concern of mine. Um, so it, it very much could reignite inflation, which is why I believe that they don't need to do more tightening than they're doing now. They just need to sustain it for a long enough period of time. Because if they were to hike rates to something like 350 and unwind the balance sheet as they're doing now, that by almost everyone's definition is beyond the neutral rate. It would be a contractionary stance. And if they sustained that for a long enough period of time, they would engage in you know negative money price wage spiral and inflation would ultimately come back down to their target. But since they've gone so far, I think there's a situation where they're going to, they're definitely going to need to ease policy before they have proof that inflation is back to 2%. And the level that they ease is going to really, in my view, determine uh, whether they reignite inflation or not. Is it an ease in the sense that they're going to lower rates from five to three? Okay, maybe that's that's not terribly inflationary, but you know, are they going to lower rates from, you know, five to, to two, restart quantitative easing, and accompany fiscal stimulus directly towards households as well, something like a redux of what they did during COVID. If they do that, then that's a significant problem in my view. The reason that I believe that it's different than the 1970s and the reason that the Fed, it's a risky game that, that, they, that they play here. And I think that they're probably, you know, I don't know what side they're going to err on in terms of, you know, they're going to be sort of sympathetic to inflation or sympathetic to growth. But I think that the initial conditions in the economy allow them uh, to get away with more than they did in the 70s because those endogenous variables in the 1970s were so strong that uh, you had significant endogenous money creation going on from the really organic uh, demographics 
and from the low levels of debt in the economy. So aggregate debt to GDP was only 150% versus 370 today. You had uh, something like 2.5% population growth in the prime age cohort versus 0.2 today. And the money multiplier was up at 7, 8, 9 and increasing, meaning that if the Fed did nothing, the, the or economy organically was generating a lot of money growth through organic demand that when the Fed uh, let off the, uh, the brakes, eased monetary policy, and we had some fiscal stimulus then, plus the organic endogenous money creation, boom, inflation came right back. This time, uh, in my view, for inflation to come back, you'll need to re-stimulate aggregate demand through monetary and fiscal policy because the endogenous variables are so weak that it's not going to happen from the economy itself where it did in the 1970s. So this time, it would be more of a political choice, meaning that unless the aggregate demand curve is, is directly re-stimulated by a coordination of fiscal and monetary, I believe that the persistent inward shift of that aggregate demand curve will be sufficient to over time knock inflation back down. But I'm, I'm uh, increasingly concerned about the fiscal and monetary combinations that we've seen around the world you know, what we saw in the United Kingdom was a, uh, a good example of that, where inflation was way too high, recessionary pressures became uh, very intense, and, you know, uh, politicians are trying to, I think, you know, to give them the benefit of the doubt, do, do the best they can to alleviate some of the painful situations for, for some households, but uh, it's, it's going to be uh, impossible for them to do that without, um, you know, causing a problem in the bond market in terms of the bond market being worried about a long-term inflation issue. If, uh, if they're going to cut off the the left tail of sort of a deflationary recession, which is what recessions are sort of designed to do. I think that's a well-reasoned take, and uh, generally, I think we're, we're we're roughly on the same side. Maybe on the durability of inflation and you know the money velocity part, we we you know we differ a little bit. But I I could very much see what you're saying happening as well. Um, I think you know if I'm characterizing this correctly, you see an environment where we have you know declining real growth, decelerating nominal, but still elevated nominal with potential either way, depending on which way the Fed goes. Mm -hmm. Right. Exactly. Um, exactly. I guess the question as we start to wind down uh, becomes, how are you thinking about you know markets in this context? And what are you seeing in terms of current pricing and what do you think is right. not right? So what I look at is I look at the performance ratio between assets uh, to get an idea of what I believe the market is pricing in. So if I look at something like the ratio of stocks to bonds, to me, that's the market's uh, interpretation of nominal growth expectations. Or if I look at something like stocks to gold, that would be the market's real growth interpretation or inflation expectations, right? So you sort of get all these different characterizations of what the market's pricing in. And I agree with uh, the way that you framed my, my view in that I expect real growth to continue declining and ultimately move into uh, negative territory over the next uh, three to six months or a technical, you know, legitimate recession. I expect the inflation rate to directionally come down, albeit slowly until uh, Q1 for, for headline and perhaps Q2 for core. But then I expect more significant declines in, in the back half of 23, if my view on recession is correct, because whenever you have a recession, you get a pretty significant decline in inflation with, with an appropriate lag. But 
uh, nominal growth will remain, you know, will directionally fall, but remain elevated in Q1, perhaps Q2, and then start to fall off more, more sharply. But when I look at the ratio of something like IWM to TLT, which is Russell 2000 to long-term treasury bonds, that ratio last I looked uh, is making a new high, which in my view is the market interpretation of nominal growth. So I see the market uh, taking a relatively benign stance on a coming decline in nominal growth, uh, where I view that the, the direction is clear that it's going to be coming down. It's just a question of the magnitude. So that ratio making an all-time high, you know, breaking out to the upside, uh, to me is a significant mispricing. So that's something where I would look at and say, okay, well, the market is saying that you know, the value of treasury bonds is declining because the Fed's raising interest rates, uh, but the value of stocks isn't declining as much. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense because the discount rate is rising. So that should lower the value of stocks unless earnings expectations rise more to compensate for that declining discount rate. So the fact that IWM TLT is making a new high is um, a rejection, in my view, of a recession coming in the next three to six months. So I think that's a big delta between where I see the economy heading and what the market's pricing in. There's a few more, but that to me is the is the most glaring one. And the reason I like IWM to TLT is because I think it's important to try and get the closest match to uh, on duration as you can. Uh, I don't think it's appropriate all the time when people compare uh, stocks to like the 10-year treasury note because stocks are a long duration asset. Um, you know, there's all different kinds of calculations of how people try and uh, pin down the effective duration of, of stocks and depends on what index you use. But Stocks are a very long duration asset, you know, 30 years, 50 years, something like that. So comparing it to the long-term treasury bond, I think is most appropriate. And to me, that, that generally tracks uh, my index of nominal growth. That makes sense. And um, I, so I think in terms of views, um, the, the, the view seems to be much more about the relative than the absolute, right? So it's, it's not so much about, oh, stocks outright or the short, it's more that stocks relative to bonds are, are a short, right? Yeah, that, that's my view. My view is that is that stocks are um, significantly overpriced relative to bonds, given where I see the economy heading over the next three to six months. Excellent. Um, I think that's a, that's a good place for us to wrap up. You've given us a really comprehensive take on how you think about the economy. You walked us through how things are working and you know how, how you see the current environment. And uh, I think people have a couple of asset allocation ideas off this as well, which is fantastic. Um, Eric, thank you so much for your time. Um, before we sign off, can you uh, tell our listeners where they can find out more about you and EPB? Sure. Um, and thank you. That was a really, uh, really great conversation. I'm glad we got to go deep on some of those topics. Um, I'm pretty active on Twitter. So you can find a lot of uh, publicly available things that I post at EPB Research, or you can go to my website, epbresearch.com. Uh, I have some publicly available videos on my framework. So if you go to the website, I think right on the homepage, there's a button that says view framework. You can click that button and watch uh, my whole framework with some video and animations, which tends to help some people. So I think those are the two best places to, uh, to find me. There's a contact button somewhere on the website. So you can shoot me an email if, uh, if you have any questions, but I uh, appreciate the time. Thank you. Thank you again. And uh, we'll talk again soon. All right. Bye-bye.